VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. China's record-breaking drought has scorched fire. Fires breaking out around London as the city... Egypt is preparing to host the next COP summit in November. With an array of new pledges, commitments and promises. I want justice for my people. I want climate justice. We came forward to bear the responsibility of hosting COP27 in the fight against climate change. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati. And this is the first of our special episodes coming from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Over the next two weeks, we'll be bringing you regular updates from the largest climate conference in the world. And joining me for the first episode is Bloomberg contributing editor Allegra Stratton. Hi, Allegra. Hiya. Now, it's a big first day at COP27. What's your experience of COP been like so far? Well, it's very different from the COP26 that I worked for the UK government at. Um, the The environment is very different, and, and I think it's importantly different. In Glasgow, do you remember how wet and cold it was yeah. for two weeks? Um, and also it's the river, on the River Clyde, and um, the relevance of that is that it was, uh, you know, for, for, for a long time, the centre of shipbuilding, a very carbon-heavy industry. And that was a COP that was about mitigation. It was about many things, and there were obviously other aspects to it, but there was the drive to get countries to sign up to net zero. Three-quarters of the world's countries did so. And mitigation was really the push. And now here in Sharm el-Sheikh, you are in the desert, uh, it's incredibly beautiful. We're very close to mountains. We're also very close to the Red Sea. And there's just much more of an emphasis on the damage to the natural environment. And it is an extremely beautiful uh, surrounding, but it is uncomfortable uh, wondering where the protesters must be. At COP26, there were protests and they were valuable and they reminded everybody in that conference room and in the plenary sessions and in the very airless, windowless rooms, they did remind people that, that, that society cares about this agenda deeply. So they had a value. And we've been hearing from uh, different activists and environmental groups also that uh, they arrived here in Sharm el-Sheikh and their room rents were raised um, and they didn't have places to go and they had to scramble at last minute, midnight, on Saturday night and they're struggling to find places. So it's uh, also been just logistically difficult for many activists. So now you were uh, the spokesperson for COP26 for the UK government. Set the scene coming out of COP26 into now. How have things changed? Well, how have things changed? We have Russia invaded uh, Ukraine and so everything changed. Um, you suddenly had the world diplomatic uh, shoulders being put to the wheel of dealing with a uh, not only the invasion of Ukraine but also the effect that that had on gas supplies and energy supplies with with clearly an impact on the kind of energy where every country is going to be using to heat its people this winter um, 
That might have meant that it was the least auspicious environment in which to go into a, a, a COP and trying to deal with climate change and trying to change how we all use our energy. Actually, amazingly, um, the IEA, the in- International Energy Agency, the week before COP started, um, produced a report that showed quite the contrary, um, that uh, our energy consumption, the fossil fuels being used over the last year, have not gone up as much as everybody thinks. I think the figure they use is actually 1%. And that 90% of the new energy that has been procured, I mean, you're nodding, actually, you know this stuff inside out, but perhaps some listeners don't. 90% of the new energy that has been procured around the world is renewable. Um, and when you look, actually, take the time we're all so focused on on the war effort, but actually when you look and you see the IRA in America, you've then got the EU's Fit for 55, pre the invasion of Ukraine, they wanted a renewable mix at 55%. They now actually have upped that. And then in the UK, we've also had our energy security strategy, which also upped the amount of renewables that the, the UK government want in its mix. And there's others, there's, there's South Korea, there's Japan, there's others. So... So the context felt um, gloomy and felt like it would be hard for progress to be made. But actually, it does look over the last 12 months that actually that that transition to a lower carbon economy has has actually been continuing apace. And this COP has been set up by both the African COP and it's being called the Implementation Mm. COP which is about taking all the promises, many, many promises made over years and probably decades for some, uh, and actually making them work. So what are the big things that you are keeping Mm. an eye out on over the next two weeks? I really like the implementation, Cobb. That phrase is up around the conference center. Um, uh, The reason I like it is that they're right. There was an awful lot of pledges made in Glasgow, and the, the job for everybody is to see them translated into action. The thing I'm most excited about is this phenomenon or mechanism, mechanism is the better word, of JETPs, so Just Energy Transition Partnerships. It's really, really complicated stuff. These are high emitting uh, coal nations trying to transition them, trying to support them across to lower carbon energy sources, but at the same time, making sure that if you're going to help this big nation transition over to lower carbon, you're also going to try and help them with jobs and so on. I think we are all going to need to see more on cash. And I think cash as a as a bucket, as they call it in diplomatic speak, but cash is around the 100 billion, which was promised essentially 100 years ago. I mean, it was promised in 2009. I think it was then by Gordon Brown, uh, which gives you some sense of quite how much life has been lived. Six prime ministers. It's only <laughs> six, been six prime six ministers. Six prime ministers. I like that you know that. But um, 100 billion the pledge was for it to be met by 2020. Um, at COP26 last year, it, it became obvious that it will be met in 2023. That's money that, that climate vulnerable nations really need pronto. They also then want clarity on what that money looks like post-2025. They also, on top of that, want a sense of, of more money for adaptation within that pot of money. So I think these are all uh, reasonable um, questions for them to be asking at a time when their actual country is is changing before their eyes. And of course, money is going to be talked about a lot because loss and damage is on the agenda for the first time here at COP27. After 26 COPs, uh, this is the first time they're talking about how to compensate developing countries for the damages caused by climate change. Yes. Um, the reason I am hesitating is that if you 
for somebody like John Kerry, the US special envoy, to be as set against loss and damage as he is, I think tells you with all his years of experience at politicking that he feels that it is a bridge too far for America domestically. It's probably the case for the UK domestically. Um, interestingly, today, Ed Miliband, the, um, the Labour minister, shadow minister for climate change and COP26, 27 and so on, he has said that there is moral responsibility of countries like the UK to 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 help with this issue. Um, I just think that in the context of a huge spending reduction exercise in the UK in 10 days time, um, it is it is important that the UK appears from the, the comments that are being released ahead of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's visit. It's important that that ring fencing of the 11.6 billion on climate finance, that is ring fence, that is protected money for this purpose, that, that still stands. Um, I think that's important. Um, at a time when, you know, let's be clear, the government will have been examining every sp- expenditure item from first principles. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for coming on the show, Allegra. My pleasure. After the break, we'll be hearing from one of the leading voices on loss and damage at COP27, Professor Salimul Haq. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Joining me now is Professor Salimul Haq. He is the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development and one of the loudest voices championing climate vulnerable countries. We recorded the conversation in the beating heart of COP27 in the blue zone. So please forgive us if you hear planes in the background, people talking or somebody just walking past. Salimul Haq, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. You've been at every COP meeting since the first one in 1995. In fact, you were at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992 where the UN which is the convention under which the COP meetings were created, happened. Do you think COP meetings over the last 27 versions have made any progress? They've certainly made progress. So what we are dealing with is a planetary scale problem without a planetary government. We have 200 governments around the world on planet Earth. Something that is a global problem like climate change requires every country to come together. And the only way that can be done is under the United Nations. And the good news is that 30 years ago, we came together And we agreed, we have a treaty. Every single country agreed to take actions to tackle climate change. 
And then every year we come together at these conferences of parties to take stock of where we are in terms of fulfilling the agreements that we made. Unfortunately, we're not doing enough. Uh, we're not doing everything we said we would do. And so these meetings are opportunities to see how we can accelerate action, how we can do better, how we can do more, how we can go faster. And we are expecting that to happen here in Sharm el-Sheikh as well. So the Egypt presidency says as many as 45,000 people are registered to come to the COP meeting here in Sharm el-Sheikh. How have COP meetings changed? That 45,000 figure is a large number, but from the time that you've been coming to COP meetings, what has been the visible change for you? The original conferences of parties were meant for government officials to come together and um, review progress and agree on new actions that they would take together. It was involving a few thousand government officials um, and they'd meet most of the time behind closed doors and, and negotiate over very arcane language which is uh, unintelligible to the rest of the people. But then over time, many more people started coming. I myself am an, not a negotiator. I come as an observer. And there are many such observers. And we do lots and lots of side events and activities. There are networks of young people, networks of scientists, networks of farmers and indigenous people and women's groups and many, many more who come to the COP to network. And so what you find nowadays is that in addition to the core negotiators, there are a periphery of many other coalitions of the willing. And that really is what you should keep your eyes on because as of the last few years from the Paris Agreement, the key about the Paris Agreement is that we needed governments to come together to agree it. But we don't have to rely on governments alone to do everything altogether. A few governments together with other actors, companies, CEOs, uh, mayors of cities can get together and decide to do something. And we have many such coalitions. And every day they'll be making announcements on what they are doing. And to me, that's really the message from Sharm el-Sheikh, is the doers, the actors, telling you what they're doing, telling all of us what they're doing, and hopefully we can stimulate them to do more. And then the negotiators have to come to a decision on what everybody can agree to. One of the design flaws in the process is that a decision in the COP requires consensus. And so we can only get consensus around the lowest common denominator to take a little bit of action, not the kind of action that we really need from everybody. And so many actors can make progress after governments have agreed to a baseline uh, action required. One of the biggest topics that's going to be talked about here, where government action is going to be crucial because there has been none so far, is the subject of loss and damage. What does loss and damage mean? Loss and damage is now a new phenomenon that is taking place, which adds to previous actions that we needed to take for mitigation, that is reducing emissions, and then adaptation, which is preparing for the impacts of climate change, both of which are, are being done assuming that we can prevent climate change. Unfortunately, we've failed. Climate change is now happening. As of uh, this year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who assess the science, have given unequivocal evidence that they can detect climate change impacts and losses and damages due to those impacts happening as we speak. A good example is the floods in Pakistan that took place just recently. 50% of that has been attributed 
to have been caused because of human-induced climate change. And under the Paris Agreement, governments have agreed to do something about loss and damage, not specifically what, mm -hmm. but since that agreement in 2015, nothing has happened on loss and damage, right? Not that nothing has happened. Some things have happened. There, there are three ways in which loss and damage we have agreed to address. The first is what we call avert it, which is uh, prevent it from happening. And that maps on to mitigation. Reduce emissions so we won't have impacts of higher temperatures. The second one is minimize, which maps on to adaptation. If you adapt, you minimize. The third one is address, and that we have not done. We have done work on averting and minimizing, but we now have to address. And address boils down to money. The people who are suffering the impacts need to be given some sort of funding to recover from those impacts. And that's what we are demanding here. Right. And so over the next two weeks, what do you think would be your best outcome on loss and damage? So the best outcome we hope we will achieve is uh, negotiate an agreement to set up what we are calling the finance facility for loss and damage. It does not have to be detailed out in any detail, but we do need to agree to set it up. Then we can take another year, come back in COP28 in Abu Dhabi, and work out the details. And there are very valid questions to be associated uh, with it, namely, where would money come from? How much money is needed? Who would handle the money? Who would get the money? All legitimate questions which would need a fair degree of research and options to be put together. And those we can then come back in COP28 and work out the details and negotiate something that makes sense for everybody. Now, the first two steps were averting and minimizing. And towards that, there was going to be $100 billion being given, broadly called climate finance, very vaguely, not really explained. That $100 billion has never happened annually. That figure, they're getting close to $100 billion, but they've never reached it. This is rich countries having to give that money to poor countries. If they can't give $100 billion, which they agreed upon many, many years ago, why do you think they'll be able to agree upon even more money to be given for addressing loss and damage? Well, we are hopeful that they will do the right thing because it's the right thing to do and not be miserly because they feel that they don't have enough money to spare. All right. And so we are appealing to them out of a sense of responsibility to take that responsibility and accept that responsibility and then talk to us about how they can fulfill that responsibility. At the moment, they're refusing to take responsibility. That's not acceptable. Now, moral outrage does, does work sometimes, but often at the scale at which we are talking, where it's 200 countries, where there's hundreds of billions of dollars worth of money to be talked about, Will moral outrage be enough? It certainly isn't enough now. There's no moral responsibility taken by the rich countries at all. So that's the first step. Money comes a long way after that. Responsibility you have to start with, and they have to take it. And I'll give you an example. Last year in Glasgow, inside the UNFCC and COP26, not a single country inside the COP offered any money. Uh, Mr. Biden came and offered zero dollars. Angela Merkel came and offered zero euros. Uh, Boris Johnson, the host, offered zero pounds. But outside the COP, 
in the city of Glasgow, in the country of Scotland, which has its own government, its own parliament, its own first minister, Miss Nicola Sturgeon. She actually put two million pounds on the table for loss and damage. She's not a party to the UNFCC, but she is a government. She took responsibility. She said Scotland benefited from the Industrial Revolution, became rich because of it, but it also recognizes that there are ancillary impacts that were unintended that happened because of the emissions of their greenhouse gases. They take responsibility and they offer two million, not a huge amount of money, but more than every other leader offered to provide to the victims of climate change. They accepted moral responsibility and they invited other governments to do that. Now, the only other government while we were in Scotland that rose to the occasion was the province of Wallonia in Belgium. They offered a million euros. Since then, one of the parties to the UN Framework Convention, Denmark, has actually uh, broken ranks with the European Union and offered a hundred million kroner. So that's what we want, more countries to come forward and take responsibility. Let's come back to loss and damage. Now, you said something that's very important. Pakistan had about $30 billion of damage caused by the flooding that happened over the summer. How much of that should rich countries be paying for and how is that calculated? So the calculations are done by a branch of the climate scientists called attribution scientists. Um, it used to take them a long time to make these calculations and they'd come back a year later saying how much additional damage was attributable to human-induced climate change. They're getting much better now. And they can now produce their calculations within a matter of days of fast-moving events like floods and cyclones. And they have attributed half the damage in Pakistan to the fact that global temperature is already raised over one degree centigrade, attributable to human-induced climate change. So the point we're making is that what used to be 100% natural events are no longer 100% natural events. They are being exacerbated, not caused, but exacerbated by the fact that global temperature has gone up by over one degree, attributable to human-induced emissions, and therefore there is a responsibility of the polluters who emitted those greenhouse gases to offer some support to the victims of their pollution. So pollution does not have, it's not victimless. There are victims and they exist. They're happening today. So there's a responsibility to help them. Now, these global negotiations require 200 governments to come to a consensus. That means just by design, that progress is slower than it needs to be. How is the climate change negotiation doing relative to other types of negotiations under the United Nations? Is there more progress or less progress on climate change? Well, I think the UN Framework Convention is a very good example of all countries coming together and agreeing to do things. It's a bad example of them actually doing what they promised to do. So they make promises and then they fail to keep those promises, sometimes for legitimate reasons, sometimes less legitimate reasons. Um, but there are other fora as well. There is the United Nations General Assembly, where all countries come together. In the General Assembly, unlike the UN Framework Convention, decisions can be made by a majority of countries. In the UN Framework Convention, it has to be unanimous. It has to be by consensus. So we always end up by having the lowest common denominator as decisions, and progress is always slower. In the UN General Assembly, they also have the Security Council, which can vote down or veto a decision even if the majority of countries have made them. Absolutely. So one of the reasons why the 
conference of parties is particularly important for the more poorer, vulnerable countries is that it's the only forum in which they have a seat at the table. Security Council does not include them. The G7 does not include them. The G20 does not include them. They're not even invited as observers. The UNFCC COP, once a year, is the only place where they can sit around the table with all the big guys and actually say something. They may not listen, but at least we get to say it. Sometimes we actually get to persuade them to do something. Now, one moment where that persuasion worked was at the Paris Agreement, where before countries were agreeing to a two-degree Celsius warming goal, but because of persistent and motivated individuals, especially from island nations, it was possible to add the 1.5 degree Celsius goal to the Paris Agreement. Seven years on, there is conversations that 1.5 degrees Celsius might be impossible. Do you think so? Well, the 1.5 degree goal was, I would say, the pinnacle of achievement of the vulnerable countries, including the island countries and the least developed countries, to persuade both the rich countries and even the big developing countries like China and India to agree to a 1.5 degree goal because they were not actually in agreement at the beginning of the COP21. Over the two weeks we were in Paris, we managed to persuade every single country to agree to adopt 1.5 as a target. Uh, that was a great achievement. Uh, we hoped that would drive action. It did drive some action, but not enough. And every single day now, we are slipping away from being able to stay below 1.5. But even if we don't manage 1.5, every fraction of a degree counts. So it's not as if two is another magic figure. 1.51 is a magic figure. 1.52 is a magic figure. 1.53 is a magic figure. Every incremental amount of temperature rise means lots and lots of people dying losing their livelihoods, and being forced to migrate. So the impacts of climate change are now real. They're happening. They will happen at bigger and bigger scales, unfortunately, in the near term. We can still prevent the huge scales in the long term, but the near term, mid-level scales are in inevitable and are going to happen. Now, one thing that happened after 1.5 degrees Celsius was agreed upon as a goal is that a series of big reports came out trying to explain to the world what a 1.5 degree Celsius warming would look like because nobody had figured out what that would look like. And then they said what needs to be done to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that's where net zero by 2050, the target comes through, where reducing carbon dioxide emissions to net zero by 2050 would allow the world to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. That target has then been taken, as you explained, by sub-government actors. So it's not just national governments, it's also regional governments, it's also corporations. Uh, and that certainly has galvanized people to come up with plans to reach those goals. If 1.5 degrees Celsius is dead, should net zero by 2050 be dead too? I, don't th I won't call it dead. I'll call it on life support. And as I said, every incremental change matters, right? So it's not as if we're going to fall off a cliff at 1.5. We'll still be around. A lot of people will suffer, but then we can still manage to stop it at 1.51 and then 1.52, all right? So we, we will keep on fighting to keep the temperature rising below 2 degrees. And at least the companies and the governments that have committed to net zero by 2050, if they meet those goals, then they would have done the morally right thing 
toward 1.5 degrees Celsius, even if the global goal is not met. Absolutely. So one of the outcomes of the Paris Agreement is that while we needed the nearly 200 countries that are in the UN Framework Convention to agree to the agreement, we don't need all of them to implement it. Implementation can be done by anybody. You and I can decide to implement a part of the Paris Agreement. Kids around the world are implementing parts of the Paris Agreement. Companies around the world are doing it. So implementation can be done by what we call coalitions of the willing who want to take action. And net zero by 2050 is such a, a coalition, the, uh, the race to zero that's taking place. We need to make it go faster. We need more people to join it. But it's certainly moving in the right direction. One other way to think about progress is that when the Paris Agreement happened, the world had the possibility of getting as much as five degrees Celsius of warming. If we think two degrees Celsius is catastrophic, five degrees Celsius is mayhem. Now, despite not enough action, the worst case outcome being talked about is three degrees Celsius, which is still pretty bad. But what does that progress feel like where you have avoided the worst of the worst possibilities? Well, I would put that to the achievement of the UN Framework Convention. Without it, we would be still heading for five degrees. A business as usual from the time we started 30 years ago would take us on a five degree pathway. A uh, UNFCC treaty followed by the Paris Agreement moved us theoretically towards a 1.5 degree and less than two degrees. We are heading above two degrees, maybe in the 2.5 to three degree range, business as usual today. But if we can ratchet that down or ratchet up the actions to reduce emissions, we can certainly stay below two degrees. 1.5 may not be reachable anymore politically, but two degrees is certainly reachable. And I'll, I'll give you one major advance that is outside the UNFCC, but it is relevant, and that is the global economy moving away from fossils. It's happening at speed now. The renewable energy world is faster, more efficient, cheaper, and it's just going to blow out all the fossil fuel investments. Already coal is non-viable. Nobody can invest in coal and make money. Petroleum will follow and natural gas will follow that. And that will be the big transition. That was a great conversation. Thank you for laying out the stakes and for giving us uh, an idea of what to expect over the next two weeks. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. Tell a friend or tell a COP27 delegate. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Also, there's good news this week. For the next two weeks during COP27, the paywall on Bloomberg Green has been lifted. You can head to bloomberg.com green to read all our latest climate coverage and everything in the archives for absolutely free. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. If you want to hear more from Allegra and me, we'll be on our sister podcast, In the City, hosted by Bloomberg TV anchor Francine Lacqua on Thursday this week. Listen and subscribe. I'm Akshat Rati, back later this week with more from COP27.